fear spike created doubt. Doubt pops and, and hits the hesitation marker. So doubt creates hesitation. Hesitation creates procrastination. And it happens with everything. It doesn't have to be extreme or violent or dangerous. You could get up and you start walking and you go, where's my phone, where's my phone, right? Like not knowing where your phone was created doubt, doubt created hesitation, hesitation created procrastination, but you stopped walking. Nobody who has doubt and hesitation continues what they're doing. So a really cool aspect of this, if you really kind of internalize the system well, is practical tactical fear management turns into time management. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa. In this podcast, I'll be unraveling the stories of high performers across sports, business, and wellness. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Tony Blauer. In his return to the podcast, we dive deeper into the self-defense system and fear management program he's created. We discuss the scenario-based approach to his self-defense system and why it's called the spear system. He emphasizes the importance of what it means to know fear, discusses the fear loop and how to get out of it, and provides tools people can use to better manage their fear. If you're new to the show, I would encourage you to listen to part one of my conversation with Tony prior to this one. Part one goes over Tony's background and upbringing and will provide you with a context to understand why he does the work that he does today. And so, without further ado, my second interview with Tony Blauer. I guess, well, first of all, welcome back for, uh, for part two. Yeah, that was, that was quick. I feel like I just saw you. Yeah, no, it was, well, it was, it was, uh, last it was week. Last or something. week. Yeah. 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 So no, it was, it was, uh, it, it was fun. And I think because of whatever element in your personality and your, and maybe your, the jujitsu and, and other, other stuff, just the way you, you constructed the, uh, questions kind of extracted from me like like different ideas and thoughts because i've been on like i don't know i don't know how many hundred podcasts um and all of them are are good in their own way but you know there's not a monotony to them but it's like hey tell us how you started and and like there's just something different in the way the the specific questions you asked so they were uh, it was interesting it was very refreshing and fun for me to talk about and there were things I remembered, Chase, that I don't think I'd ever talked to. There were a couple of stories or connections. I went, like, I don't know that I've ever even, I didn't remember that until just now. And so I love those types of conversations. Yeah, no, I, I love them too. Hopefully we can keep it going for this one. Right. Uh, well, cool. I think um, we ended the the last podcast just before getting into like the origins of the spear system and how, when you, how you developed that. So maybe as a good jumping off point, and I think we might have touched on this before a little bit, but like, how did you go about figuring out this self-defense system? Like in the early days, like, did you have any sort of guiding principles or philosophy to help you filter out and establish like what you want to be part of that system? Yeah. I, you know, it was weird cause it was, uh, it was truly organic and really intuitive. I, 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 you know, it's one of those things when you're, you gotta, you gotta understand that like in the eighties, I mean, I was mocked and ridiculed by reality-based self-defense trainers of that era. Who do you think you are, Bruce Lee? You know, why aren't you just doing Jeet Kune Do if you're trying to be, you know, and I was like, 
like nonstop. Uh, and, and it was funny because it was back in, in the day where, you know, there was no email, like public email in the early 80s. So like I'd find out that I had a hater because the next Black Belt magazine came out and there was a letter to the editor going, I disagree with Tony Blauer who wrote the last article, you know, uh, blah, blah. <laughs> like you're reading it and then you're going, what did he say? <laughs> you'd get a pen and paper and you'd write down, dear John, like, and then you'd <laughs> mail it. Literally, that's how stuff would, I, like you guys have no idea. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, it it really wasn't, obviously I was I was greatly inspired by, by the work of Bruce Lee and his messaging. But ironically, even within that, that became the complex motor skill and not the spontaneity that Bruce talked about. The famous story of Bruce being interviewed and he takes his wallet out and he throws it to the interviewer. Do you know the story? Have you heard this I, I don't know that one, no. Yeah. So, you know, he's there and the guy's talking to him. What do you mean by like uh, uh, spontaneity? I forget what they were talking about. Bruce takes his wallet out and he, he throws it and the guy goes and catches it. He goes, see, just like that. You, you didn't think, oh, you know, he's, he's throwing a, uh, um, uh, um, he's throwing a, uh, uh, a wallet. I should catch it with my left hand and my foot should be here. He was just talking about spontaneity. Um, and, um, you know, like things like that stick in your head, but then you're there in class and someone says, if he throws a right hook, you're going to bob and weave like this, or your, your hand is going to come up and you're going to, you know, you're going to parry it like this, or this will be, you know, a tan sour, this will be a fox sour. And like, suddenly you've got these, these like, like geometric principles of, you know, you'll do this when he does that. And I didn't know it at the time, but um, like that contradicts spontaneity and just flow. Right. If uh, uh, at the highest level, but I was very influenced philosophically by Bruce Lee and his whole you know, Jeet Kune Do methodology. And um, so when I would do things, like if something didn't work, I'd sit there and I'd be like, why, what's going on? Am I doing this wrong? Did I not understand it? And I intuitively started to figure out things like, if the bad guy's moving first, how can you download and direct like the neuromuscular link, the signal speed in your brain. And I didn't have this language back then. It was just like, it was more just generic. Like, how do I get here in time? Yeah. You know, now I can say to you, if I can say to you, look, here's what happens is you've got neural patterns and the eye picks up patterns. And, you know, if you, if you're a grappler and you see me change elevation and go down, you're immediately your 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 spatial relationship and your experience is going to decide sprawl guillotine or sprawl oh shit too late pull guard oh i got him down you know take his back and you've got these kind of like ricochet pivot points based on what happens but those are your three options as a grappler now if you're a striker you're not going to think those now you've learned other neural patterns so this is an interesting and important conversation for anyone you know, thinking about self-defense versus martial arts or trying to understand the right. difference. Our theoretical brain downloads the right answer based on the question. So I say to a boxer, you have a guy, he's standing in front of you. 
and it looks like he's going to tackle you. Yeah, let him do that. I'll hit him with an uppercut on the way in. You know, you got a, a tie boxer, guy goes to attack you. That's great. I'll just drive a knee into his head. The, the grappler goes, I don't care. I'll sprawl and I'll take his back, you know, or I'll pull guard. So everyone has a theoretical answer. And then suddenly real life happens. And, and, and you either did or didn't do what you thought you were going to do. So all of this go back in time. So I can explain now the neuroscience and how that works, blah, blah, blah. Right. But back then, of course, first of all, that neuroscience didn't even exist. Like there was no language in the 80s about myelinization of a neuron and neural pathways and, and stuff like that. It was hypothetical. Uh, and there were some generic thoughts about the, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, of the, the nerves that uh, fire together, wire together. There were people that was like back decades, you know, people said, oh, if I do... I do these patterns, I'll get good at this. But for me as a self-defense instructor, you know, I'd be doing stuff. I get punched in the face, sparring a 15-year-old kid going, how did that happen? How's a student of mine hit me? What did he do? And I realized that a lot of times, and I make this joke, like when I would spar with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, she would hit me all the time when we'd spar because her movement was so unorthodox. The syncopation, and like now I can explain, well, her patterns were so obscure that my brain, when I'm in here moving and I'm, cause I'm trying to pick up a pre-contact cue to counter the move, right? Yeah. It's chess, right? We're playing chess. I'm trying to guess the person's move. So anyways, all of that, uh, I'm going sideways with this answer was in the eighties when I, I was so committed to helping this kid, uh, and I don't remember how far I went. Like I started teaching this kid, Mitch, that I tell Mitch, about. Yep. Story. Yeah, you told the story, yes. And, and did I tell how Mitch's brother wanted a lesson and then Derek and Richard across the street. And like, like within a, a month, I had 30 students. Yeah, yeah. So, but my, I had already had the epiphany when Mitch lost of, oh my God, we teach self-defense wrong. So everything became, what's the scenario and why are we doing this? That thesis statement. So if you came into class and you said, hey, I was watching a TV show and I saw them do this. I want to learn this move. I'd say, Chase, like, have you ever seen that happen in the real world? Is there any chance it's ever going to happen? Should we waste our valuable training time practicing something that doesn't exist except for theatrically? Right? Right. So you go, oh, coach, I thought we could do that, like jump spinning, then or whatever. And I go like, there's no evidence that you need that in self-defense. This is a self-defense class. Having that very specific focus forced me to come up drills at an intuitive level. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, like just in today's garage gym class this morning, I'm sitting here talking like this and there's a, we teach vertical elbows, right? Negotiator stance guys in front of you. Hey, calm down, calm down. Oh shit. Whack elbow. How do you throw the elbow? And it's in the context of when you flinch, your hands come up to protect your head. And so what I've done with the spear system is when there's a micro flinch, that creates a spontaneous uh, uh, kinetic energy in your nervous system that's faster than cognitive skill, right? So if I say you do an elbow, you have to go elbow, right? But if I flinch, the flinch speed actually launches a neural pattern that can release an elbow and it's way faster than cognition. It bypasses cognition. Okay. So everyone knows it from the negotiation stance. Oh, shit. Push away danger. The bad guy's on you. Release the elbow. 
It's almost mm-hmm. like if you're tightening a, um, a wrench, you're tightening a bolt with a wrench and you get to like, you're, you're here and it's like, okay, I can't, I can't get, I'm going to try and do a quarter more turn. You ever done that? And the wrench slips off, but it slips off. It's going zero miles an hour. But when it slips off that bolt head, what speed does it take off at? Because of kinetic energy, it goes to full speed right away. Yeah. Right? Like you're screwing something, it slips, it, it accelerates instantaneously. Well, when you flinch and you fire any counter from the flinch, you've got that acceleration of that kinetic energy. Well, this morning in the class, I'm here talking to the guys who are talking, and I say to two of my advanced uh, on this garage gym class, I go, I'm going to call a move, and I want you guys to do this as quickly as you can. So we're just sitting here like this. I got my, you can't see, but I got my hands on my lap on a chair and everyone's like doing this. I go, everyone lean forward, put your hands on your lap on the chair. And I go, okay, quickly as you can, vertical elbow. And uh, two of the guys who are advanced in the class go like this and they come up right away and they throw an elbow from here. And I go, watch me, whack. And I throw the move here. And I like, I like, and they're like, what? I go, isn't this a vertical elbow? Like why? I mean, if you look at the line, right, it's vertical. I go, can you move spontaneously and instantaneously from where you are? You can't change your stance. So if I'm here leaning over talking to you, and next thing I know, some guy standing behind me puts his hand on my shoulders, leans in over my ear and says, hey, here's what's going to happen after I get through with you. Nobody's going to recognize you. They're going to need your dental records, motherfucker. And I'm like, holy shit. And this guy's leaning over talking to me. His sternum's a target. His throat's a target. His jawline's a target. And I go, whack, and I'm coming up there. That gives me time to hit him and get out of my chair. But this is the type of creativity we bring to the training. It's not standing there, right? And so I just use that as an example. It's fresh in mind. It happened this morning. Yeah. That that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing in the 80s. And I don't know why, like I like, like you said, hey, you know, what was your program? Did you have like the system was just intuition i'd be sitting there and guys would be like i'd have two students on a couch and i'd go uh okay guys how would you start a fight right now and they go what <laughs> you know and you see like people would want to stand up and do this and i go like no like how would you fight here because somebody jumps in the back of a taxi cab or somebody sits down beside you and has a gun here and says you know how would you move? and i was just doing weird shit like that uh And I think what was really clear is I wasn't, I was very clear telling my students, don't try to win this, try to experience this. And then we're going to debrief it after and kind of Socratically go, what'd you think? What'd you learn? What do you know? And what you would discover is, uh, you know, oh, you, you, you know, your aerobic capacity was really limited that, you know, when the fight kicked off in 20 seconds, you were gassed and, and wanted to stop. Or like you felt really uncomfortable fighting from a seated position. But if you think about real violence, you know, one of my memes, I think I mentioned it last time, is violence doesn't care what martial art you study. Like it just happens. Like the bad guy's violence. So that was a really long long answer, man. I'm disappointed with my answer. I didn't have a formula. Yeah. It was just intuition. We would do, and it was, listen, it was also very heavily, it took me years to purge the sport model out of the training uh because even i wanted to like throw a kick to the head or get some combinations in there you know we there'd be a clash 
there'd be chaos here. You'd push away, create space, and then it would be punch, hook punch, you know, round kick to the head. Uh, you know, and it took me probably seven years to completely wean that out of my my neural patterns because I've been doing that for you know over a decade at the time that I started teaching. Yeah. It's interesting. It's because it sounded like you it intuitively just picked up on all these startle flinch uh, movements and patterns that people were doing. And then further down along the road, looked into the neuroscience behind why that was happening. And You know, it's funny because very, very early on, we created the 3Ds in the 80s, Diffuse Defend. So I knew there had to be a part about situational awareness. I knew we needed a system to de-escalate. In the 80s, which was my incubator period, you know, we had nonviolent postures where we, you know, I came out with, uh, you know, a video in the early 90s called Science of the Sucker Punch, which is how to blend natural movements. If I, you know, if I wanted to drop a hammer fist on your face uh, in, in a fight, we were talking, I'd scratch my head, whack, and then the shot, like I would load, like if you thought about a big hammer fist, it'd be like, boom, but if you and I, let's say you're my fuck you fuck you we're doing this and i go key i do that <laughs> you know you're like you're gonna punch me or you're gonna flinch yeah so it'd be like you know i'd rub the face i'd scratch boom and then the shot would come in but what i would like so this is like we were teaching how to conceal movements if i wanted to uppercut you i'd go look man there's three things you need to know about fighting me number one i'm a hemophiliac you hit me in the face you know you could you could uh, uh kill me look up Google hemophiliac number two, boom, uppercut. Like, so I've got you looking at my hands, mm -hmm. you know, going, when he counts to three, I'm going to punch this asshole in the face. But I, I'm, I had all these brain manipulations going on, nonviolent posture. So it was really uh, like, I explain it with way more simplicity and elegance now, although it doesn't seem like it. Uh, but back in the eighties, those, 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 Killer principles were there: nonviolent postures, de-escalation, uh, science of the sucker punch, which which you know morphed into a more legal-friendly preemptive strikes or anticipatory self-defense. Um, but it was all there, and the big, big, big epiphany, which really changed what the spear system became. And spear wasn't even a thing till 1987. Okay, um, so that's all the how do you weaponize the startle flinch? Well, even though when Mitch grabbed the kid and had his books in his hand, he flinched and it was his cross extensor chain that locked up on the shirt and the books that prevented him from doing any wax on wax off. I didn't look at it and go, well, oh, of course the flinch. Like I didn't even realize it. It wasn't until probably two decades later, analyzing, rethinking that fight that I went, oh my God, he did this, right? And he couldn't, there's no way he could have brought his hands up because now we teach, like when we're teaching our law enforcement, military, or other public safety, is that if you think things are going to kick off, you you as best you can, you got to clear your hands, because if they're holding on to, you know, a flashlight and a license, and someone does something, you're going to tighten up whatever you're holding. You're going to clamp down on. You're not going to you're not going to launch a counterattack. Um, right. The biggest the the two biggest things that emerged out of the '80s that helped shape no fear turned into the development of high gear and developed the, the spear system was in, because we started doing scenarios every month after Mitch, you know, so, so we created like fight club before there was fight club. We get together VHS, put on mock equipment, no high gear, you know, hockey gauntlets, you know, hockey helmet, 
taekwondo chess garden so on. you know it's really just a smorgasbord of equipment and we just set up a scenario and they beat the crap out of each other and film it and look at it so i was always telling my students of course your athletic ego is going to try and dominate but don't try to win try to do the best you can and then do another rep and try another strategy or concept try another position so that you didn't get like locked into something i was really going after this be spontaneous um and uh but this was my biggest epiphany, big fancy word for light bulb moment. And that was the bad guy controls the fight. If you're a good Samaritan and you're hanging out at a bus stop or a bar or waiting in line at a movie or, you know, sitting at a coffee shop and, and somebody walks up to you and goes, give me your money, give me your phone. Fuck you. What are you looking at? Who started the fight? If you're a good Samaritan, who, all, who starts every fight? The other guy. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And then who influences the level of force? If you understand force options, right? And it's something that's more of a law enforcement term. But basically, everyone listening to this should know you can't just do whatever the fuck you want in a real fight. Like it's, it's, and a lot of people, some people are, have been grown up eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Other people understand force options and force continuum. But here's a simple uh, uh, um, rule that might save you from getting thrown in jail. The force you choose must always parallel the danger you're in. The force you choose must parallel the danger you're in. So if the bad guy starts the fight, the amount of force required to create safety for yourself is contingent on you measuring or understanding the amount of force the bad guy comes at you with. So like if you're a concealed carry holder and a drunk walks up to you and grabs your lapel and goes, give me your fucking wallet or I'll punch you, you can't take your gun out and shoot him just because you're armed, right? That, like that's just, that would you would lose that in a court of law. The force is not paralleling the danger. Right. So what I'm showing, and I'm trying to make this really clear because this is not legal advice over, over, over your podcast. It's force parallels <laughs> danger. Therefore, the bad guy actually inspires the amount of force by what they're doing. Someone comes running at me with a machete or a baseball bat. I probably shouldn't be going, hey, man, I don't want any trouble. Like things have kicked off and gotten really violent. And then the last concept in the bad guy controls the fight is the duration of the fight is going to be contingent on that individual's resistance. If I palms, I've, I've hit guys in confrontations with one shot and the fight's over. I'm not saying the fastest, strongest guy in the world, but I hit somebody, let's call him a paper tiger. Somebody's going, I'll oh, fuck you up, fuck you up. And I go, whack, and I, you know, and I'm on the, and all of a sudden he gets hit and he's like, oh, oh like, dude, what are you going, fucking crazy, man? Take it easy, right? And this is like, you know, your 16, 17 year old testosterone bullshit shit. But what I'm saying is that guy pushed me. I threw a, a you know, light shot as a 16 year old, hit him hard in the face. And he realized at that point there, there was going to be a fight and he didn't want to go anymore. He was happy with the verbal. At that point there, I can't also reverse punch him in the stomach. And when he doubles over, grab him by the head, knee him in the face, and then throw him in a wall. Yeah. Although I might be visualizing that, the good Samaritan to me and the person that understands the law. And so this is a big one. I went a little deep in it because I want everyone listening to understand that you need to figure out how to survive a violent encounter. But when you understand that it's the threat 
that is influencing the factors that are going to create like the intel for you to, to counter it, that's huge. It's, it's, it seems contrarian or sorry, or counterintuitive. Um, but it's, it's very liberating when I just go, Hey man, I don't want any trouble. And I'm waiting to see where this goes as I try to diffuse it. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely, definitely makes sense. Well, I guess if you're a master at the uh, no touch martial arts, you don't have to worry about any of that. There, there are a bunch <laughs> like, uh, um, what's the, uh, uh, McDojo page has like every, every week they've got like 10 different, that, that, that page is amazing. But, um, the, uh, yeah, the eighties were my incubator period, man. And it was mm -hmm. out of doing all of those experiments that I pressure tested these tactics. And here we are again, you know, uh, three decades later, and my number one clients are law enforcement and military and other public safety. And those people really fight. So this stuff actually works in the real world. Right. Right. Why do you, why is it called the spear system? Why, why the name spear? Great question. So 1986, 87, I hallucinated this drill called the sucker punch drill. And I said to one of my students, a really good boxer, I said, Hey, Warren, put on these 16 ounce boxing gloves. I'm going to put on a mouth guard. We're going to stand within arm's reach of each other. And you start a scenario and I'm going to just go along with the scenario. And at some point during the scenario, hit me anywhere on my body, fast and hard or filming. He looks at me, goes, and what do you do? I said, I, I just want to see how close is too close. I had already, I had already figured out that introducing dialogue completely changed our reaction time. So if I say to you, as an example, put up your dominant hand, uh, chase, stick, stick one of your, your strong hand up, turn it sideways, get ready, or, or no, keep it like that. Mm -hmm. uh, when I stand, when I stand up, palm strike me in the face. Ready? We're having an argument. You're going, Hey man, in fact, put both hands up. So it looks realistic. You were, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're like, we're at a bar sitting across from each other and I'm going, fuck you, fuck you. And you're going, Hey, take it easy, man. Take it easy. You're like this. And I go, you know what? And you know that if I stand up, I'm getting ready to fucking yeah. nail that. And you're going to just smash me. Okay. So now let's do that again. I'm going, hey, fuck you, man. Get your hands up. And I go, you know what, motherfucker? I stand up, boom, you nail me, you hit me. That's theoretically the fastest, well, the second fastest human response. Now, this is actually a good model here. Put your hands up again. Um, with your dominant hand, just do a palm strike. Go ahead. When you're ready, in and out, nice and fast. Okay. So that was way quicker than the demo before. Now put both hands up. Focus on both hands. Like okay. being up, like you're talking to me, <laughs> yeah. but you're going to think you're, you're right side dominant. You're going to do your right palm strike. And you're saying to yourself, looks like Tony and I are going to get in a fight. I'm going to palm strike him if he fucking gets close to me. So get ready to move. Right. Now you uh -huh. see how like that was way longer than when I just said, go on your own. So, so here's two things that that's a, like a fun little private lesson for you and anyone who's interested in this stuff. Hopefully you have one or two other people that are into martial arts on your, on your podcast. Definitely. Yeah. More than, more than that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the way we break down, the way I train tactical and combat athletes movement is, is I tell them you've got raw speed. So however fast you are, you can make it a little bit faster, but you just, that's your fast twitch, slow twitch relationship, but then you've got quickness. So quickness was when you demoed the, the uh, palm strike. 
But the only skill that's relevant is what I call suddenness. And suddenness is how quickly you can move in relationship to a stimulus. So you went like this, you went like this, and you went, oh, okay. Then when I said, when I stand up, now you're waiting for a stimulus. Your brain has to go, he's standing up. I see, fire, yeah, yeah. Fire that. So now that was three or four times longer than the first rep. And what people don't realize is they stand in front of a bag, boom, boom, boom. They spar, which is the dance. They grapple, which is the dance. And then they're in the street and guys going, fuck you, fuck you. And they're going, when should I go? When should I go? When should I move? Should I? And there's all this emotional, psychological noise and distraction. So the only thing that's relevant in the real world is your suddenness quotient. And that's how quickly can you move in relationship to a stimulus? Now check this out. And I'm going to go back to the eighties in a second, both hands up. You're trying to talk me down. Okay. Um, this time when I say, I'm not changing anything. When I stand up, when I stand up, you're going to, with your dominant hand, smash me with that palm strike. Okay. Uh, the only thing different at this, at this, at this moment is what I want you to, to consider is, is there any chance that when you lean forward right now, when you move in there, is there any chance that you're going to hit your face on your mic? Could that possibly happen? Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I see what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so suddenly if I, I gave you what's called disinformation, I gave you something to think about. You actually look down at your mic and all of a sudden I'm already up headbutting you stabbing you punching you because i said to you something so we had discovered doing all these scenarios hopefully that was a cool oh yeah yeah experiment for you is you went from that's pretty quick tony's making me do palm strikes online i hope people make fun of me i'm doing a palm strike i'm a jiu-jitsu guy but i kind of <laughs> it went from however fast that was to way slower with just one stimulus and then when i added a fake conversation that could be a real conversation you didn't even move. Right. Right. And so this is important because this is what happens to us with the opportunistic douchebag in the street who comes up and goes, Hey man, listen, I was at work. And you're like, you're, you're like, what, what's the guy, what's this guy talking about? Hey, you got the time? Yeah, sure. Boom. Right. And it's disinformation to set us up. And so what I discovered in the eighties was any type of dialogue totally fucks with our reaction time. So we all have a theoretical, yeah, I'll just armbar that guy, I'll tap him out, right? We all have a theoretical idea of, oh, yeah, I'll just hit him with an uppercut, oh, I'll round kick him in the head. But, but neural muscular communication, our brain telling our body to do something, needs clarity. Executive function needs to, to control the cognitive brain. The cognitive brain says, do this. But having a, a, a real or fake conversation with somebody or being distracted by voices in our head and what do I mean by that? I'm not that we're insane, but if you're going on, oh, fuck, fuck, where's the police? We called the police. They're not here yet. Oh shit. There's three of them. What am I going to do? I thought it was just this guy. This guy just got out of a car. Fuck. Does he have a weapon? And like, you're standing there like this and you're having this conversation in your head. Mm -hmm. Very distracting, right? You're not at the same time, like thinking clearly. So how does this tie into in the eighties? When I did the sucker punch drill, I had already discovered the dialogue. So I said to Warren, you start a conversation with me that I got to answer. So I was intentionally stress inoculating, intentionally putting myself in the worst like, psychological position to move quickly. And then I was figuring out how close is too close. 
Because right. if I'm over here, you know, in the gym like this, and I say to you, you know, I'm 10 feet away from the camera. If I go, listen, man, fuck you. You can be, and then when I do the happy Gilmore punch, you have time to, oh shit, you can come under me and take me down. That's beautiful. If I attack you from 10 feet, you're going to, you're going to shoot on me. You can see what's happening. But right. what happens when it's like, we're right beside each other. So proxemics, understanding you know spatial relationship and, and managing that space is huge and what i discovered was there there was a distance that where you're just going to get fucking hit it doesn't matter who you are tyson sugar Ray leonard tony doing an experiment there was a distance that was so close that i you're just like fucking getting nailed and at that distance here's what i started to what started to happen we got close and i like you know warren go hey the boss wants his money Right. So I go, hey, I need a couple extra days. Like immediately when he said the boss wants his money, I went, okay, I borrowed money. This guy's like the muscle for a loan chart. It didn't matter what he said. I just tricked my brain. I said, okay, we're going to improv class now. And like, wow, you know, he hit me with an uppercut. And what would happen is I get hit, my hands would come up. I get hit, my hands would push away. I get hit, I'd grab them, I'd overhook and underhook, but it wasn't pummeling. It was like, just like, oh, fuck, I'm falling. Right. And I did this for about an hour. And at the end of it, you know, I had a mouse under both eyes. My lips were bleeding. I, my face was swollen. I'm popping Tylenol. I got an ice pack on my face. And I'm watching the VHS recording back. And I notice that every time I flinched where he was throwing a combo, that over half the time, my flinch beat his punch and deflected it. So... You know, imagine if you reach through the screen to grab, grab my throat and I go, boom, like I'd flinch your hand, hit my forearm and bounced off of it. Where if I was trying to wax off, wax on or bob and weave, remember physics actions faster than reaction. Who's action in an ambush, the bad guy. So when you practice, when he does this, I'll do that. You're violating physics. And this is why when you look at real videos, like evidence-based CCTV or an iPhone capturing a fight, you, you almost never see anyone looking cool in a real fight. You can't even almost tell who the good guy or the bad guy is in, in a fight. Right. If it's truly violent, it's, it's chaotic and it's scary. So we discovered all that. And this, and this was my mission and a, a bit of a gift, I would say, is I could look at it and see what was happening, see the pattern, and then reverse engineer a drill so that we could practice that. And what I saw in those videos was the startle flinch intercepting the jack-in-the-box moment, the sudden violent encounter. So I started to just explore that on purpose where I'd go, like initially I'd be there and I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking do a rising block on here. Or I'm gonna parry this one, or I'm gonna block this here, or I'm gonna do, like I thought I would intercept it, but it was too close but I knew it was onto something. And obviously the acronym SPEAR didn't happen until 1993. I didn't come up with it. So how did I come up with the name SPEAR is I ended up modifying our stance because it was so effective that I, I changed our stance to something like this. And if I, if I give you kind of a, a, like a different angle of it, it looks like a spearhead. So what I would tell people, if I use my Bob dummy for a second, is I'd be here like this, our stance was like this, and when Bob would come in to punch, my movement was 
fuck, I'd come in and I would just spear the attacker. And so we used to call it, there was no acronym till the 90s, but we called it the spear for years because of the icon that I was penetrating, I was impaling the attack. We discovered that moving backwards was slower than moving forwards in a real fight. So, so as you move towards me, I was moving towards you. We would dive in like Superman, fingers splayed, arms outside 90, because that became that frame that, that, that was so structurally sound. And we called it the spear. And we would just tell people, hey, I need you to be the human spear. I know it's scary, but moving backward is slowing than, slower than moving forwards. Uh, when this guy attacks you, drive in and impale the attack. And you've probably heard this, um, that the true warrior is at the tip of the spear. So I metaphorically say, in your fight, your point, you need to be the tip of the spear. You need to attack the attack. So it was a really nice psychological, motivational element. And it became such a default move. So I'd be de-escalating de something. I'd be like this. You'd shove me and I'd go, hey, man, I don't want trouble. And so I'm in this loose spear stance. That's the, the frame. And then, you know, it would always seduce when you hit that position. It would magically seduce a sucker punch or a tackle. And this motion, people would run right into the forearm. And, and it was fucking beautiful. It would just stun them and set up what we would call closest weapon, closest target. Well, fast forward five years, I'm training uh, Navy SEALs, Naval Special Warfare, and I'm teaching them the spear. But because it was such a, a it, it evolved into such a go-to move in the system, it was so effective. I would always write it as a capitalized, I would always write it capitalized like this, because it was like, now we're going to do the spear. And this was like a whole series, a whole block of drills. Defense against a sucker punch, defense against a headbutt, defense against a tackle, spear, 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 Hicks law compliance. And one of the guys at Naval Special Warfare says, what does it stand for? And I go, what do you mean, what does it stand for? Because it was all caps, they thought it was an acronym. So, so I said, it doesn't stand for anything. It's you're the spear, you're the human weapon, you're the tip of the spear, be the spear, impale the attack. And they were like, oh, fuck, we thought it was a, an acronym. And as soon as they right. said that, on my next trip, literally two weeks later, I came up with it. I was over in France teaching somebody uh, that just left Coronado. And I, and we'd all, you know, I'd been talking about spontaneous protection and the startle flinch. And the first acronym was uh, spontaneous protection, enabling aggressive retaliation. The psychology, okay. the psychology of that was I'm doing everything I can to avoid doing everything I can to morally, ethically diffuse. And now you've forced me to defend myself, my family. And I need to retaliate because you're moving first. Remember the bad guy controls the fight. I called up the guys in, in, uh, in uh, Coronado in San Diego. I said, here's your acronym. They were all excited. They loved it. 1993 also got discovered by the law enforcement community. And suddenly I'm like all over the place doing seminars to police and SWAT. And the law enforcement world is very litigious, very different than the military. And when they learned what the acronym was, they went, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't aggressively retaliate. Can't that, you know, our, our legal teams are flipping out. And I'm like, holy shit, I got to change the acronym after falling in love with it. 
And I sat there, I was frustrated. It was the beginning of the cancel culture. It was 1993, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I upgraded it to spontaneous protection, enabling accelerator response, which is actually more accurate because it's the study of the neuroscience related to the neurobiology of fear and how do we turn our startle flinch into a protective or tactical movement. Right. So it's actually a better acronym as a result. Right. Well, cool. Let's, um, let's actually shift gears here a little bit and go into the no fear and what, you create, what you've created there. So um, I think we talked about the origin story a bit in the last episode, but how about the, like when did the idea for the actual like program no fear arise like when did that start so that also started in the 80s it wasn't called no fear but you know it was it was our cerebral self-defense mental edge program mm -hmm. we actually came out with an audio in 1993 called cerebral self-defense the mental edge so I, I just say that because i want anyone who's got historic inclinations or to understand that this was always part of my dna de-escalation, fear management, mental toughness, resiliency, mindset. A lot of people think that people in the fight community are just knuckle draggers and looking for violence fight. You know, if you listen to George St. Pierre, you know, he'll tell you, you know, he was terrified before each fight. And at the worst day of his life was the day of his fight that, uh, that he, he, he hated it. Uh, and that, um, uh, you know, Tyson used to throw up and cry before fights and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm not, I was never the knuckle dragger guy. Let's fight in, you know, I, I abhor violence, which is why I've created such a holistic system. And so the no fear, it just matured over the years. I didn't, if you had said to me, I didn't realize how important it was in the eighties. I knew it was significant, but I was in my twenties in the eighties and I didn't want to lecture on mindset. I wanted to put on gear and friggin' have people headbutt me and and be returned the favor i mean we were just we we're it was hardcore and um but if you said to me now i'm 61 and you said to me tony you can only pick one do your like most all-out scenario training multiple sale and stuff or you know stand up and talk about the virtues of the no fear program and you could only pick one to do for the rest of your days i would pick no fear because what i realized chase was that it's only the people who manage their fear who manage to fight. Right. You don't manage your fear, you don't fight. So there's lots of examples and stories of trained fighters who hesitated, who experienced doubt, who second-guessed themselves, sport and, you know, in violent encounters. So the No Fear program continued to evolve as I would make little connections. Remember, I was teaching so many private people and, and our system, because it was holistic, I mean, I've taught in women's shelters. I've taught to tier one operators, you know, uh, pilots, uh, healthcare. I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's pretty amazing that the system can impact and augment the safety of, of such diverse groups, right? From somebody who's following like a Hippocratic calling, do no harm, to somebody who's, you know, uh, I'm not saying that that military law enforcement are do harm, but they're there to serve and protect, but they sign up knowing there's probably going to be a fight one day on my job. But if you asked, we're doing a lot of courses now for EMS, 
paramedics, healthcare, if you would ask them when they signed up, hey, you know, how often are you, do you think you're going to have to train self-defense when you go out on calls? They go, never. Like years ago, you go, never. But now these people are being attacked at an alarming rate. It's just insane. So right. the psychology is completely different is what I'm getting at. So no fear has evolved every three, five years. There's a new discovery, a new insight. Uh, and now we've actually got, it's an entire vertical in the company where I do corporate coaching. I do stuff where I'm working with individuals and teams, uh, working with parents who are working with kids who are struggling, uh, you know, with amazing, amazing stories. And what the systems evolved into is this idea that when you change your relationship with fear, you actually change your life. And that sounds so grandiose and I sound like some bullshit, you know, infomercial scammer. But here's the thing is you and me and everyone listening to this has a relationship with something that we may not consider or identify or label as fear and we rationalize it as something else. It could be public speaking. It could be saying, I love you. It could be committing in a relationship. It could be transparency. It could be everyone like, you know, everyone has some sort of fear and doubt about something. And you could be, and, I, and I've experienced this firsthand, you know, dealing with like, like tactical operators who've been in gunfights, who with the right questions and the right time will go, yeah, this is my biggest fear. It's something with their family or something with their wife or something with their kids or, and, and it impacts how they communicate or, or how they prepare because it's a distraction. So the idea is the program has evolved into a resiliency program, a leadership program. We've got uh, psychologists who've gotten certified with me who use it to treat PTSD with vets. I mean, that's how, that's how potent it's become. And if you had said that to me, like, you know, in the eighties, Hey, this is going to turn into this, you know, there's a part of you that would have said, cool. And there's a part of me that goes, okay. Like, because like, I didn't see that. And it wasn't, I didn't design it going, Oh, here's a niche in the marketplace. I'll build this. And that's, and that's true for everything I built. You know, right. high gears sold millions and millions of dollars over the decades. You know, we, we sold 7,800 to the U.S. Army for their combatives program. It was a $17 million order that took three years to just put together and a whole year to, to fulfill. That's a big freaking order. But right. I, I, need, I, need, I need everyone to understand it. I didn't, I hated being a manufacturer and everything about that. The, 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 the inspiration for it was doing my scenario training, trying to make people safer, saying, you know, we can't continue to do this with hockey helmets and hockey gloves. This wooden chest guard from, Thai, from, from Korea for Taekwondo isn't allowing us to grapple the way we want. Like, you know, we should build our own suit. And one of my students said to that, why don't we build our own suit? And I was like, hmm, okay. And as soon as, as soon as I said that, you know, you're out. And next thing you know, like I was at a trade show and there was a, a, a company that was helping design a stab resistant suit for law enforcement. And they had these different foams. And I just said to the guy, all your foam is really, really bulky. Do you have anything thin? And he said, come by the office 
And that like really kicked off the whole thing. You know, just, so it was just like an idea, but it was never, oh, I'm going to get rich, which I didn't do, but like, but, you know, it wasn't ever about the money. It was about how do I solve a problem? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. How, how often do you get people who just want to eliminate all their fear? I don't get that a lot. And why I think that is, 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 uh, this is funny. People are afraid to contact me. <laughs> so, um, right. Yeah. You, you get the irony, of course. Yeah. Um, I make this joke that fear management needs new management. Because if I said to you, if you didn't know me and I said, Chase, let's talk about your fears. You'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm a jujitsu instructor, a tennis instructor. I've gotten like in the, <laughs> in, in the conventional context, we all have a facade. Yeah. Right. When it was two weeks to flatten the curve, I'm sitting here and going, you know, this will be okay for two weeks. I hang out, no traveling, get to reconnect with the family, chill out. Well, a month in, all of my courses, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of business gets canceled. Why? Who are my, who's my audience for our seminars? Police. They weren't, they were deployed. So we went to, they were canceling because of COVID and then it was defund the police. So people are leaving and quitting and, and training's not being supported. It's like, Hey, we're in, we're in a defund the police culture. Let's, let's book a combatives course. No, that wasn't happening. Right. And I, you know, within three months that we canceled 30 classes and I was sitting there one day and I did the math quickly in my head. And I said, I am about to lose my business my home, my ability to feed my family, everything I've worked for, for 40 years will be gone very soon. Zero money coming in. And guess what? The fear management expert, I almost threw up my fucking office. I got so scared, dude. I was like, like this in my chair going, holy shit. And I remember my wife calling me for dinner. I was not hungry. I pretended to eat, you know, Hey, you're eating really slowly. Do you know, are you okay? Yeah. I had a snack before. Sorry. I'm not hungry, but I was like pretending to eat. Right. I, and I gave myself 24 hours to just whine and bitch about it. And then I said, you know, get your shit together, man. You're a fear management expert. What, what do you need to do? And this comes back to, I said earlier, the people who manage their fear manage to fight. Doesn't guarantee victory, but you're not going to, there's no chance of winning if you're not fighting back in a relationship, in business, in, or a violent encounter. So, um, you know, little, little detour, do people come to me going, I want to eliminate all fears. If they read over my material, they realize I'm not that guy. Yeah. So right? And, and my messaging, and it could be better, but what I try to tell people is like, there's no such thing as no fear. There's K-N-O-W fear. You got to know fear. You got to get to understand it. When you make fear your friend, in other words, when you go, hey, this shitty thing happened, or this is the roller coaster that I'm on this week. Life was cool. And then like, nobody has three great days. You didn't get up and like, like you had a great day today. You taught tennis, you went for a run, you, you, you did some business shit. Mm -hmm. It was a good day. You didn't say, you know what? I hope something catastrophic happens tomorrow because today was a good day. I'd like to really kind of exercise my fear management skills 
So life surprised me with something shitty tomorrow. Like nobody thinks that. <laughs> yeah. Right? So when something happens, whether it's root canal or a lockdown or uh, uh, some violent encounter or you hurt your back, the longer we stay in denial going, I don't believe this happening to me. This always happens to me. Like the, sh the longer we're in that quicksand of fucking emotional duress, the people who manage their fear manage the fight. And so the whole system, the whole program is, is a multifaceted way for you to kind of reorient yourself, develop better self-awareness so that you can uh, uh, access your critical thinking. Everything in life is about critical thinking, something that's sorely lacking in this day and age. And so you can't even access critical thinking if you don't have good self-awareness. So understanding how to manage fear requires self-awareness. So there's a connection there. The serendipity of that is it accesses um, your critical thinking skills. And then a byproduct of the whole thing is this, is that when you are in the what I call the fear loop, when you're like, oh no, I don't believe this, oh fuck, you know, we, what, we, what we identify is this, that you get a fear spike. The fear spike triggers uh, a, an imaginary movie in your mind where you're visualizing yourself losing, bad shit's happening. While that's happening, what's, what's occurred, if you think about these dominoes, the fear spike created doubt. Doubt pops and, and hits the hesitation marker. So doubt creates hesitation. Hesitation creates procrastination. And it happens with everything. It doesn't have to be extreme or violent or dangerous. You could get up and you start walking and you go, where's my phone? Where's my phone? Shit, right? Like not knowing where your phone was created doubt, doubt created hesitation, hesitation created procrastination, but you stopped walking. Nobody who has doubt and hesitation continues what they're doing. So a really cool aspect of this, if you really kind of internalize the system well, is is practical tactical fear management turns into time management that if you manage your fear you manage time yeah yeah you talked about that in the, the last episode too yeah that's kind of that's that that to me is badass for uh, anyone who realizes that the only resource we can't regenerate is time right so you're spending it or you're wasting it as the expression goes yeah yeah definitely and then uh I want to go back to what you're talking about just just then, um, kind of why some people don't fight back. And I think it was also in a, a video on your website where you mentioned, uh, or someone asked you why people don't fight back, and you responded because they're afraid to lose. Like, yeah. can you maybe dive a little deeper into like the yeah, psychology exactly. around that? Because um, I mean, yeah, it's for great. me, it's a little hard to understand why someone wouldn't fight back at, at least a little bit. You know? Yeah. Uh when you're really scared, you don't. There's lots of examples of it, man. There's a ton of examples on it online. And if, and if you've never, if you think about all domestic violence, if you think about uh, kids being bullied, if you, if you there, there's so much evidence of people like just not doing anything. And it was actually Greg Glassman, who, who was the uh, founder of CrossFit, who said it, said that to me, we were having lunch one day. And he leans over, he says, hey, why do you think people don't fight back? And I'm about to, you know, go off on one of my rare tangents of, uh, huh. you know, 
you know, blah, 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 neuropsychological, blah, 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 doubt, hesitation. And as I start talking and he said, I've been thinking about it, isn't it just because they're afraid to lose? And it blew my mind, it's simplicity. Why doesn't everyone invest? Why doesn't everybody start their own business? Why doesn't everybody, why, why doesn't everybody ask anybody they want on a date out on a date? Like all of that is fear. There's the power of no fear. So when Greg said afraid to lose, at the deepest, purest, most elegant, simple level, you know, we could say, well, you know, they visualize there's a part of the brain inside the amygdala that's called the shmagegi. I don't remember. There's a fucking thing there that they, they've discovered something they think can activate courage. And they're testing it in, in mice. And I'm like, whatever. Okay. Um, the, and I could go deep into that, but I think that like some of that's, some of, some of it's ridiculous because because, well, I'm not going to go into it. Yeah, don't go. Yeah, don't go. <laughs> but the, it's, just, it's just this idea, idea that we see a car accident happens and a bunch of people are filming and some people are pulling people out of the wreck. You've seen maybe the uh, uh, bystander effect videos online where, yep. they, where they set up, right? And there's like, everyone walks by going, oh yeah, I see that kid being kidnapped, but I don't want to get involved. And then, you know, someone goes, hey, what's going on? Like, if, if you sat somebody down and go, why didn't you do this? Well, you know, you don't know, like, you don't know the case. No, no, why, why, why? If I force the real deepest core answer is I was afraid. Greg just added afraid to lose. But we could say, there's a line that I tell that I've used a lot with my fighters. And I look at them before they're about to fight. And I go, if you didn't fear fear, what would you do? If you didn't fear fear, what would you do? Because you, you think about this. What belt are you? Purple belt. What level? Purple. Are there, is there anyone in your club that, that can tap you out? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? And is there anybody that's a little bit rough? He's like, he goes outside the the nice part of jujitsu, this guy's like always hurting people a little bit or goes, you know, he chokes a little too hard. He arm bars. He doesn't release as fast as like that. He <laughs> waits for the third one. Do you have anyone in the club like that? Uh, we've, we've had those people for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and when, when the buzzer goes off and you switch partners and you turn, and you see it was that guy. Did your physiology change a little going out? Oh, this is the guy that fucking wrecked my elbow last time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but because you're already in the flow, so there's the there's a lot of people who don't show up to certain sparring nights or or fake injuries or I need a rest now because they know that's the guy that's going to choke them out and embarrass them. In other words, um, so Greg said to me because you're afraid to lose, but if you weren't afraid to lose, like if you didn't think you could actually be tapped or submitted by anybody then you would just want to spar all the time, right? Um, and, it, and it's different, when it, like it's a deeper psychology. It's different if you're good at a good jujitsu school, right? Um, you know, and that's the responsibility of the coaches to, to make sure the students understand, you know, the moral ethical philosophy of rolling. Uh, but 
it comes back to if I didn't fear fear, which is again, uh, you know, uh, um, pointing to the to the importance of getting to know fear. Uh, but but that line was significant also in helping shape because it was you know probably eight or nine years ago, maybe ten years ago that he said that. Um, and like little conversations like that go, you know, this is bigger, bigger than I think, you know, because at the end of the day, I could, you know, conversation with one of my team today in the office. Hey, why isn't this done yet? Oh, I couldn't find the that, that, that. Yeah, but it's been here. Like, how come? But why didn't you bring it up at the meeting? I don't know. When it comes down to it, they were afraid they were going to get in shit because they were doing it wrong. Right. So you kind of like, oh, I forgot about that. But the real answer, and that's what I mean by like in every level, fear management is time management. You know, I went a circle back on there, but I really, I don't know if I've exhausted that or if, if I even answered it for you. But there's lots of people who, you know, I've been offered, hey, do you want to do this with this thing? And I visualize it, you know, I could do it in 50, 55, 60. And I go, man, if this doesn't work out, that could cost me my reputation and cost me, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm going to pass. I don't say that out loud. I go, hey, timing's not good. Thanks, Matt. But why didn't I do it? It's because I was afraid to lose. Interesting. Right. Yeah. In the, in the literal sense, you know, yeah, yeah. it was. And, and that's and that's different than like, you know, like I you know, I weigh and consider and I had my accountant do an assessment and we valued their company and I went, this isn't right. But even that, like in the literal sense, someone comes back and goes, hey, they're just a startup. They might not do this. If they don't do that, they failed here. This guy, blah, 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 blah. I go, this is a gamble. Well, we're at a gamble we're afraid to lose. Right. It's interesting. It's, 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 it's an interesting talking point. Yeah, 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 definitely. And going back to the, the fear loop, what are some what's the key or, or some keys to help people um, get out of the fear loop once, once they're found themselves in it? The, the, the biggest and most important reframe is to remember this is you can't be brave if you're not afraid. That's a, that's a part right out of the no fear program. It's probably my most potent line and it's telling people, it's explaining to people that there's no such thing as no fear and no fear, but there is a way to get to no fear. And when you get a fear spike in life, like it's unsolicited, you're not sitting here going, bring on some pain and some danger. So I'm afraid you go, ah, oh, fuck. You open an email and you're like, oh shit. And you get an adrenaline dump and then you're doing this and you're like, fuck. And then you're what, how do I solve this? You get the fear spike. You're wasting time. You got to get control of your fear. And, and so to get out of the fear loop, which is doubt, hesitation, hesitation, because procrastination, you're wasting time unchecked what i mean by unchecked if you don't have the self-awareness to go dude you're freaking yourself out calm down there is a solution for this there's almost always a solution and even if the solution is like kamikaze run towards the threat and start fighting right and so unchecked meaning if i don't solve it that fixation can turn into non-clinical or clinical anxiety for some people so that's somebody perpetually in the fear loop and we all know people like that because of the last two years who've lost their business lost their family lost their hope lost their focus because they are not managing their fear it's that potent yeah so yep. you can't start moving the, the the ray of hope the light at the end of the tunnel is holy shit 
because people say they won't use this word, this, this exact phrasing, but I wish I had more courage. I wish I was braver. Because I'll have people say to me, wow, you're so brave to do that. And I go, like, what do you mean? Like, save my company so I could feed my family? Man, you exercise so much courage the way you pivoted. Uh, the alternative was like hanging myself or, or, or you know, getting, getting going on food stamps and selling all my possessions and ruining what, no, there was no choice. It was like you said, you can't even imagine somebody not trying to fight back. Yeah. But millions of people didn't. And it's not because they, they didn't have access to resources. They couldn't see the resources. They couldn't get resourceful because you can't get resourceful if you're not willing to fight. To fight, you need to be brave. And so the first reframe, Chase, and everyone listening, is, is saying that anyone who is ever brave or courageous had to have had fear before. And I can prove that by just saying this. If, if, if somebody is not afraid to skydive and they're not afraid of dying, if somebody's not afraid of getting shot in a gunfight, if somebody's not afraid of running into a building because they've got a death wish, they want to they want to die in a fire, so they become a fireman, but they keep saving people instead. Huh. Give me a crazy example. Then it takes no courage to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if I say to you, if I say to you, holy shit, man, you went for a run. Wow, that takes a lot of courage. I know lots of people that have died on runs, and you go, what? No, running's good for you. It's fun. Wow, you're so courageous. Like the fact that you're not scared to run. Now imagine this. You're now hiking in Montana and someone says, you know, there's black bears and fucking cougars around here. You better have bear spray and you better carry a gun. And you decide still to go for a five mile run, but now you're fucking shitting your pants the whole time. And yeah. I've done shit like that where I'm now walking through the desert and the guy with me saying, hey, just watch out for the rattlesnakes and the scorpions. And we're like on a walk and I'm like, holy fuck, that's right. Well, normally I'm not afraid to walk, but that day I was walking with carrying the fear loop on one hand like, and the duress path on the other. It wasn't an enjoyable walk. It's an example, like a, 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 an element in a scenario can change what you thought was okay. That takes courage because I could have easily said, fuck this. I'm like staying back here. I'm not going for a walk. I don't care how scenic this trail is. Right. So we, you know, those people who manage the fear, manage to fight and substitute fight to do anything. The biggest change, if you want to manage fear is, is, is this big reframe that anybody courageous, if you look on the side, if this was a bottle of courage and I look at the ingredients, the number one ingredient here is fear. You need fear for there to be courage. You can't be brave if you're not afraid. And that starts accessing. Now your, your problem solving brain is going, okay. So it's okay to be, that's the biggest thing that when, when I'm working one-on-one -on -one or a group of people, I go, because everyone thinks you have to have no fear. Like the original no fear company, that was a great slogan. The battle cry of N-O fear. Fuck yeah, no fear. That's what you want. That's what I wanted. The, the no fear program. I remember when I like a few years ago when I went, this is it. It'll get a little better, but this is the program. 
after 30 years of studying violence, fear, and aggression, this is the program. And here's another thing, you know, I could be like a Red Bull athlete and adrenaline junkie, and I write a book on managing fear, and I tell you here's why, because I, you know, I, I look, look at me doing this acrobatic jump off this thing on fire over a pit of alligators, and people go, wow, that guy's got the, like, the, the you know, greatest amount of courage ever. Look what he's doing, look how dangerous this. But if I'm an adrenaline junkie, how do you relate to that? So for me, I've struggled with fear management my whole life. I grew up afraid of every single sport, but I was good at it, but it impacted how I performed at what level I performed at. I was afraid to let down the team. I was afraid to, to let down the, you know, my coaches. I was worried about winning or losing. I had all these distractions. So I was here going, don't strike out, don't strike out, as opposed to fucking burn that in here, baby. I'm going to nail this. Like I was just, it was just the wrong, you know, and you could do that. You're grappling with a guy and you're going, don't give up your back to this guy. This guy's really good. He gets the hooks and you're done. Like in your, like you're, you're trying to motivate yourself through the negative as opposed to, you know, you're on a mountain bike trail going, watch out for that rock, watch out for that rock, as opposed to where's the opening. And, and so, you know, it's, it's just a slight reframe and it changes everything. So there's a lot more to the navigating the cycle behavior and what I call the neural circuitry of fear, but it starts right. with this huge reframe that just says this is that suddenly if you go, the only way I can be brave if, is if I get a fear spike. So holy shit, I can't be brave if I'm not afraid. Now that I notice that I'm afraid, there's a moment where you just take a deep breath and you go, okay, what do I need to do? And then you start moving. We, we have a cool, yeah. yeah, we have a cool acronym called fuck fear. It's actually a t-shirt and fuck is an acronym for face it, understand it, control it, know it. And so it's, it's a very linear, very cool acronym that I've gotten so much feedback on, man, where, where, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I share that it's really a big moment in the seminar where I teach it, but I share it here. You know, I would like everyone listening to this to invest in, to get our making friends with fear ebook. It's free and to get our no fear and buy it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But full transparency, I'm giving you these nuggets assuming you're not going to do it. Like just in case you don't take it to the next level, this acronym can totally change everything. I'm scared. Holy shit. My relationship's going sideways. My business is going sideways. These guys are following me uh, or I got a problem that's going to turn into what do I do? You got to face your fear. If you face your fear, you begin to research it and understand it. You may have this confrontation arise way before you're ready and that's always the case right you know you're like i'm not ready i just had another day to prepare but you got to go so you got to manage the fear that's control it and then the more times you do it starts with ref one you get to know it right so so you know you you do you compete in bjj yep okay uh, how are you before a tournament um, I, I mean, always, always a little nervous for sure. Right. But if you think back to your first one, your first one, you you might've been, you know, like, okay, I don't know if I can fucking do this. Like I'm ready to throw up. I'm so nervous, you know? And yeah, the first one not. I was, the first one I was blasting music in, <laughs> in my headphones, trying to basically but, block but out my nervousness. Trying to distract yourself from yeah. getting psyched up. But, but what I'm saying is your first fight to your 10th fight, your 10th fight, your 20th fight or tournament, your adaptation changes. And I've, yep. I've coached like uh, 
uh, pro and amateur fighters. And you'll see from a guy like hanging out like this, listening to music, he's got headphones on, to another guy, you know, walking around the changing room doing this, to another guy, you know, with the, uh, the, the sewing machine foot, He's on the ground and his legs going like this to like another guy bouncing his head, you know, off the locker bank. Um, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. You just see all these different reactions. These are people who are at different points of their career. That's all. In managing the pre-fight stress. It, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so you mentioned you work with corporations before. There are a lot of entrepreneurs and founders uh, who listen to this podcast who who have to deal with lots of fear um, on a regular basis, but, but just not on the, I guess, physical confrontation front, hopefully. So uh, do, you, do you have any like stories or examples make you can maybe share to help like these <laughs> leaders become better leaders or better manager, managers and apply some of these no fear principles to yeah to, for them and their, and their businesses? You know, it's really funny is, uh, and they didn't say I couldn't mention it, so I'm going to mention it, but but I get, I get this email from Google a year ago, and they've got one of their specialty teams is really at risk of not making their quota for this quarter. And this guy who happens to, um, their, their, their team manager, knew about me from through self-defense or whatever, heard about the No Fear program, he emails me from Google. I think it's, I thought it was spam at first, you know, cause I'd never seen a Google email come into me, you know, like, like, like their corporate. And I was like, what is this? And I call the guy up and he starts talking and, and he, he want, they want to hire me to talk to these people. And I couldn't resist, but I made the joke. I said, how did you find me? Did you Google me? And he found that funny. So thankfully he found that funny. Um, but we ended up like, there's an example of like super, super smart people who it was, it was reframing. It was the same stuff I explained now. And obviously we went deeper and longer and, you know, there's uh, uh, specific exercises and scenarios that we'll do in breakout sessions. It depends on how long the session is, but we've done stuff for hospitals, for firefighters, for corporations, for entrepreneurs, the, 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 um, depending on where you're coming in, you might be like the leader who has to have his game face on and you're just really worried about the company's health and performance. So, you know, when, when I went to dinner that night with my family, I was aware that if I, if I walked out with the same face and energy that I had here, everyone would stop eating and go, dad, what's the matter? Right. And the whole, everybody like, you know, so I had to come out there and pretend that I had just had a snack before forgetting it was dinner and everything's cool. And then I had to fix it for my family. So sometimes it's like uh, a non-specific malaise. It's like, man, I'm like, like, what do I do? And it really comes back to injecting the, the principles of those people who manage their fear, manage their fight. So each company or entrepreneur or founder might come to me with a specific uh, element. How do I improve sales? Or how do I tell my investors this? Or how do I, and, and initially, and this is funny, and I obviously for confidentiality and other stuff, I, I can't get into the details, but my the, the power of my system is that I'm not going to fix this problem with you, is I'm showing you a metaphoric algorithm that you drop any problem into, 
to drop it in and the system starts you thinking it starts you on this journey where you co-create the solution because of prompts from the system so there's a bunch of uh, questions and 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 things uh, stages in our, our we have a map called the cycle behavior the neural circuitry of fear you'll probably have a, a jpeg of it that you can show if we haven't sent it to you we'll send it to you after the interview but it's called cycle behavior but it's it's almost this neural circuitry of fear where i look at what's my scenario what are my beliefs how do i get out of the fear loop what are these stages here and so anybody of like any size problem any problem small or large goes okay we can and comes back to i can't make good critical thinking strategic and tactical choices if i'm emotional and reactive and i don't want to be in the fear loop when i'm making decisions so um a lot of times i had a uh, guy let me think about if i could talk about this because this was kind of big and i can't mention the guy's name but it looked like his whole world was going to like everything he'd ever built was going to when it was going to uh was going to stop and um and he was hit really heavy during the cancel culture he's in the entertainment agents uh, uh, um, uh, entertainment community and he had a tv show canceled and he had his career just upside down really good guy and all I had was three talks with him, guiding him through the cycle behavior and reminding him, dude, you're, you're one of the smartest guys I know. You're one of the funniest guys I know. You're an athlete. You're in super intelligent. You read, you read books. You've created a career. You're going to figure this out. But I can't save you. It comes back to like, no one's coming to save you, right? And, and when people realize... I said, the only way you're going to do this is to go through it. And you need to understand that you're supposed to be scared shitless right now. And it's going to reinvent a new you. But nobody wants to hear that. Like when you stub your toe and you're going, lock my toe, you don't want me as a doctor to go, Chase, there's nothing we can do about your toe right now. Right? The pain right. will stop soon and we can't put a splint on your pinky toe. Right? right. So, you know, you, you break it at jujitsu, you catch it in the gi, and you're like, ah, <laughs> like, like it's, there's not a lot we can do with it right now. And so when it's happening, what we do is we, we, we just got to remember, okay, a sudden stimulus was introduced. I am now in the fear loop. The longer I stay in the fear loop, the more time I waste. Um, and, and the more non-clinical or clinical, clinical anxiety I create for me and my team. It wasn't that wasn't a very corporate answer, but I didn't want to mislead anybody, right? Uh, uh, because a lot of it is is us and the way I I I go back and forth with somebody where they start to to go well. I suppose I could do this. That would work. I'll call this guy, and he could. And now suddenly, like like a battle plan is forming. Why? Because we got them to step out of the fear loop. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Cool. Let's uh, get into these last uh, handful of questions here. So what's the story behind people calling you, just calling you coach? Um, what's, what's the story behind that? I don't even know. I don't even know when that started, but it, you know, I think it started where I didn't like when I was 
Oh, I, I remember why. So it started in the 80s. And when we were running our martial art classes, I never made people bow. And I never wear, made people wear uh, belts or uniforms. I was purely invested in personal safety. On the door to my school, said no rituals, no uniforms, no nonsense, functional self-defense. I felt the need to say functional self-defense because I didn't think all self-defense was functional. And so when people come in and go, hey, what kind of uniform? I go, just get one of the school t-shirts and wear sweats or shorts. And they're like, really? No uniforms? I go, does the bad guy in the street care what belt you are? Like this was the beginning of violence doesn't care what martial art you study. This is back in the 80s, Chase, right? Yep. And then it was like, I remembered, and I would do this with people. They go, well, what should we call you? Sensei, Sifu, Mr. Blower. I go, well, if you say Mr. Blower, I think you're calling my dad. So why don't you just call me coach? Because my job is just to inspire performance. And I remembered in elementary school, I can't remember any of my elementary school teachers' names. Can you? Uh, a few, actually, a few. Okay, well, that's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> I can't. I don't remember any of my high school teachers' names, but I do remember my gym teacher's name in, in um, elementary school. And I do remember my gym teacher's name in high school. And I remember my gym teacher's name in college. Coach. Football. Hey, coach. Wrestling. Hey, coach. Gymnastics. Coach. And I, that always stuck with me that these people that were there trying to make me perform better were a coach. Uh, my ski instructor, I was a competitive skier, called him coach, right? Yeah. Um, and so in the 80s, I said, look, my job is to make you better. So I'd be really happy if you just called me coach in the class. If you see me on the street, you can go, hey, Tony, how are you? It's just, you got 30 students in the class. I don't want like, you know, 15, 16, 17, 20 year olds going, Tony, Tony, like if you, you want to get the instructor's intention. And I didn't want it to be teacher or instructor or Sifu or sensei. So I think that just, that just stuck. And yeah. then people, yeah. people knew and it just became, and people just, and now I get like, like, it's crazy. I get complete strangers, like who just follow me on Instagram, you know, going, Hey coach, can I ask you a question? I'm like, and, uh, it's funny, I'm 61, you know, I'm friends with, um, oh my God, I just forgot his first name. That's how funny it is. <laughs> he's Olympic, you know, uh, Coach Bergner from, from, he's an Olympic lifting, like world famous Olympic. All he do is call, his, uh, call him coach. He messaged me the other day. I'm like, hey coach, I can't even remember his first name right now. That's how crazy that is. Yeah. He's just, yeah. Co he's just coach to me, but he's 70, I'm 61. It's not like, you know, you know, he, he, he says, Hey, Tony, you've just always been that way. You know? Yeah. I used to yeah. work with my father. I'd knock on the door before I go in. I go, excuse me, sir. How can I talk to you? He's my dad, but at the office, I call him, sir. I still call people, sir. Like I love somebody DMS me and goes, Hey, I really uh, appreciate what you're doing for law enforcement. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. You know, I don't see it as an age or hierarchy thing. It's just coach. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's super cool. Thanks. Let's say we meet again on the street in five years. What would you want to be telling me that you've accomplished or created since this conversation? It could be personally or professionally. Um, I, I would, 
love the, so a few things that we're working on, we're working on a no fear program directed just for parents. And, and I've had, uh, when I created, when I finally got to the point where I went, I think this is done. And I went, oh my God, I actually said this a year ago. I wish somebody had taught me this when I was 10. And I realized that your life, my life, and everyone's life would be different if we were taught at seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-olds about the psychology of fear, that it's okay to have butterflies, it's okay to be scared. Because the stress I had asking a girl out on a date or screwing up on a test because I had I drew a blank because I, I just associated too much fear with the outcome of the test. Uh, how I hated, I dreaded uh, competing in sports where that could have been an amazing experience for me. Like I still believe I'd have gotten to where I am, but with less cortisol, with less gray hair, with less stress, because my relationship with fear would have been shorter. It's again, it's not like you asked the question before, do people come with you and they go, hey, eliminate all fears. It's like, no, you can't eliminate the fear, but you can spend less time with it and you could turn it into fuel where you now use it to face, understand, do the research, and now I'm diluting its hold on me. So in five years, I would love to bump into you and go, dude, uh, we got more specific with no fear and we're changing people's lives by re-educating everybody, teachers, psychologists, you know, like, like, like just to think when I get a call from a psychologist that says, this is more effective than anything I learned to help treat vets with PTSD. This is saving people from committing suicide. And I'm like, holy shit. Now, this is the, 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 the a professional psychologist integrating the no fear program into their practice. So I'm not saying that I'm that psychologist. That's a, a skill set, right? But like, this is how big that is. So I would like in five years to have, have figured out a way to create a ripple effect with that. Because I really believe that we change lives when we change people's relationships with fear. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. What does your daily routine look like? Wow. Um, Sometimes my schedule, if I showed you my calendar, you'd go, this is a joke, right? Is this for your whole staff? <laughs> like the, other day, the other day I had 16 things that I had committed to do in one day, let alone, that was just on my electronic calendar, let alone the little notes I make. Um, but what I do is I try to get enough sleep, but I get up and be, before I get up in the morning, I will... Uh, and I missed it today. So I'm being totally transparent. There's times where my schedule is so insane that it just looks like, oh shit. Um, I will typically wake up without an alarm clock. I'll say, okay, man, you need to get up six o'clock, get going. And I'll wake up. I'll meditate. I'll do some very intentional breathing exercises to exercise my lungs in a specific way which is everyone should be doing given what's going on around the world. Uh, doing jujitsu is getting you in good aerobic and anaerobic shape, but it's not intentionally and specifically exercising your lungs. Doing breathing exercises does that. In the same way, you can be grappling, Chase, and you got strong hands, but you can also 
you know, get the world's best. I don't get any money to say that captains of crush and they've got, they've got, you know, like I can barely close this one. They've got, they've got, uh, um, like number five, I can't even move it. Number four, I can hardly move it. Number three, I can't even get like, it's so you can isolate and do specific things with your hands so that you can do the same thing with your lungs. So mm -hmm. I do everyday meditation just to develop um, better mental focus and brain power and mindfulness practice. Then I do breathing and I do those two things before I get out of bed. Then I will get out of bed. Uh, and then what I'll do uh, is I, I plan my shit and then I'll go for a walk almost, almost every day. Uh, I've got a, some cool trails around here. There's no bears. There are cougars and coyotes, but they're at night, so I'm pretty safe. And uh, and I'll do that walk, and and then I come back and I hit, I, I'll hit the day. Uh, sometimes I've got a lot of writing commitments. We're working on a really cool interactive book, which is people have been asking me for years when I'm going to write a book. So I'm writing. And I've got lessons coming out. So it's actually like it's a it's a it's an alive organic PDF where you read a couple of pages of like insights and information, and then you watch a class. So I've been writing every morning. Uh, and then I, I'll do that when I'm having my perfect day. I won't even look at social media or email until after I've committed that. And that'll usually uh, that'll go from like like seven to nine, those two hours are real creative. Then at nine o'clock, three times a week, I teach live on Zoom. All those calls are recorded and they go to our, our library so anyone can access them and watch them. And then and then really my day starts after okay. the day be the CEO day starts where I'm like really a fireman with a hose putting out fires, going, fuck, how did this happen? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, um, any parting words uh, you'd like to leave the listeners with? Either be around, you know, self-defense, fear, or anything else you'd like to leave them with? Uh, this, like, like, go read the no fear stuff. Invest in the making friends with fear stuff. I like, it will, it will, if you're a parent, I just, I just had some new ink done in, in uh, Vegas. And Aaron, the owner of the tattoo of Ghost Tattoo in Vegas, had hit me up a month ago and he said, I got a 10 year old son and he's having anxiety with school. He's playing sports with a mask on. He doesn't understand what's going on. And he's very self-aware and he's got anxiety. And he said, as a dad, he said, you know, do you have a no fear thing for kids? And I said, the problem with our kids now is we're letting teachers who have political agendas teach them. I said, you need to be your kid's teacher, man. The no fear program is for you as a parent. You need to mentor your kid. And I said to him, Chase, I said, are you worried about your kid? He said, yeah. I said, then you need the no fear program too. I said, but what you can do is you learn it and you teach him. I'm not raising your kid and you shouldn't let the school raise your kid. Teach your son how to look fear in the eyes and go, hey, fuck you, let's go. I'm gonna use you as fuel. You can't be brave if you're not afraid. And 
I could tell you this and I don't get, I get emotional, but I sat down and this father, his eyes teared up uh, in, in the class met. And he, I got a letter inside, I'll run in and get it and read it to you, that his 10-year-old son read, read to me. 10 years old, dear Mr. Blauer, thank you so much for this program. It's really helped me, you know, and he's in there. I'm going to get it. Can I get it and read it to you? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. This is like, literally, this is fresh ink. I, I did this on, on uh, the day after uh, 9-11. So it's two, not even three weeks old. You can't see it. There you go. Oh, no, I can, yeah. Okay, but you can see it's a 10-year-old kid's great handwriting, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If I, were, if I were to look like a serial killer. but <laughs> Better but, than mine, but too. I'm going to read this to you. This, this dad gives this to me with tears in his eyes, and he said, uh, my son... Salem wanted you to have this. I open it up and he, he writes, dear Tony Blower, thank you for giving me the tools to have a good mindset and for making me into a little better, into a better person. Me and my dad have been listening to your seminars. It is helping both of us. And I think that is awesome. I'd also like to thank you for giving me the tools that help me be brave when I'm afraid to always practice courage and to remember that courage is contagious. I'm excited to learn more and, and always move forward. Thank you very much, Salem Jackman. Like, like, if I think about it as a parent, I'll fucking start crying here. And I'm not, I don't want you, I don't want to do that. But he gave this to me and we're like there. I'm going, oh, fuck. Um, this is everything. This kid, right? Whether he learns martial arts or not, he's the kid that chase where did you go yeah somebody tried to uh bully salem and he had not, he didn't have anything to do with it he fucking put the guy in his place i'm not talking about the martial art i'm talking about the mindset right so this dad is planting these seeds in a 10 year old i wish somebody had done that for me and and uh so my parting words to everybody is you can't be brave if you're not afraid. If you change your relationship with fear, you change your life because you're changing your mind. You're changing how you're relating to a lockdown, a, a government overreach, a challenge match, a, a dude, I, I used to, I got a, 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 a neck injury, an issue that's affected the nerves of my neck and my face. So I, I can't, I can't roll. I can't do certain things that, that I used to love doing, but I remember uh, misreading the schedule one night at, at uh, uh, Studio 540 where I used to, to, you know, grapple. Yeah, sure. And uh, I walk in there and they know me, right? And I'm like, oh, hey guys. And it's like, it's just all black belts grappling. And I go, what night is it? And I'm like, my schedule, like oh, I travel so much. And the owners know me, they go, it's okay, you can, I'm like, Dude, I'm a fucking white belt as a grapple. I have no belts. I just grapple because it's it's humiliating. And that's a good exercise to do with people. I'm not good at jujitsu. I'm just a good grappler as, a, as an athlete. But I lose all the time. I tap out all the time. And it's a good experience. But I'm like, no, I don't want to do the black belt class. I get my ass kicked in the regular class. But they're like, I'm not saying that, but my heart's racing. My physiology is changing and they're going, yeah, Tony, come on in. And I'm like, oh, no, I'll, like, I'll just, no, come here. You're here. Go get changed. Hurry up. And I'm like, fuck. And the only reason I'm hesitating 
is because I'm afraid. And it's not that I think I'm going to like get killed afraid. It's like, why would I subject myself to that? I couldn't walk for three days after that class. It was awful. Right. Um, but I, I, I told people after that class, I would have rather been in a fight with six guys than grapple, you know, 16 black belts and just fucking have my body bent and, you know, every position. But what I'm sharing with everybody here is I'm a pretty accomplished martial artist with decades of experience. I walked into the wrong class standing there and I went, oh, fuck. And all of the, the adrenaline, cortisol, fear that's running through my mind. And I, I could just say, no, I could bullshit. I could, I could, but it was like, okay, go, go through it. The ability to manage fear exposes us to opportunities that help shape our future self. Awesome. That's a great place to, to end. Tony, uh, thanks again for, for coming on. Thank you, awesome. dude. I appreciate, I appreciate you and, and uh, your insightful questions. And, and, I, and I, I enjoyed both our talks, man. Yeah. Yeah, me, uh, me too. Um, it may just to let, let the listeners know again where they can find you online. Uh, well, I'm shadow banned on Instagram still, but you can find me there. If you can find me, it's at Tony Blauer. That's where I'm most active as far as uh, commenting and posting, but I repurpose my posts to Facebook and LinkedIn. So I'm in the usual places just as Tony Blauer. And uh, I would encourage all of you to go to info.tonyblauer.com, but I'm sure you'll share the links. Uh, and there you, you can get the ebook on fear. There's no charge to that. And you could see a bunch of our live classes. Like we've got a, a gunfighting course, you know, coming up at Fieldcraft Survival, and we do other live courses and law enforcement, military. So it depends on where you're coming from. Uh, and if you're in the corporate world and you just want to get on the phone and chit chat, uh, you can book a call with me. If you just go to the coach Blower page or the no fear now page to learn more about what we do for our companies and teams, that'd be cool. That's fun. Awesome. And y'all calls to visit my website, chaserosa.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.